Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Welcome, a full slate of movies to talk about this week, so let's get right to it. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And the Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of Marcus Crosswoods Theater. 70-foot-wide ultra screen featuring Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Loungers recliners. Best place to see a movie in Columbus. The big, big screen, the comfy, comfy chairs. So we thank you to a Marcus Crosswoods Theater. We'll start out this week with... A story of the first Special Forces team deployed to Afghanistan after 9-11. Under the leadership of a new captain, this team must work with an Afghan warlord to take down the Taliban. This is 12 Strong. Every step we take is going to be on a minefield from 100 different wars. Odds are we're not all going to make it out of this one. We don't take that city. World Trade Center is just the beginning. General, you show me exactly where we're going. Well, what are the mountains? We take horses. All right, who's ridden before, anyone? Summer camp when I was nine. Spring break, but I was pretty hammered. There's no playbook here. We're going to have to write it ourselves. I ain't losing one man on this team. You could stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. We're fighting with horsemen against tanks. I did not have very high expectations of this movie. Part of it was the trailer made it seem like just another color-by-numbers war movie. Well, that's the thing. A lot of these types of movies, you've got extremely heroic, courageous men doing the, this an incredible story of bravery. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to take away from that. It's certainly worthy of attention and worthy of a movie, but... There's been so many that they fall into a certain set of tropes. See, very formulaic. Very, and it's hard It's hard to overcome that, and some of those this movie does not overcome. Other times it does surprise a little bit, right. and um, it, it is. It's an, an incredible story that I guess was just declassified a few years ago. Right, right. Uh, but they do have, There's a. they're called the horse soldiers because they went into Afghanistan mainly on horseback to try to take back this Taliban stronghold in the week's uh, right after 9-11. And, and I guess now, I didn't know this, the movie points out there is a, a monument to them at the foot of the uh, 9-11 memorial in New York City. Right. So, yeah, it's an incredible story, definitely worthy of the attention it's getting. But it does have those inherent roadblocks to get over as far as cliches. You've got the strong men bounded by battle. You've got the stoic women at home, uh, and, and the men leave their women and children behind. And there's a almost a, a choice the filmmaker has to make do we address that? Because it's an incredible sacrifice these men and these families are making. And how, if we do address it, how do we make it not seem like the same old stuff? Right, no, exactly. It's hard. I mean, structurally, the movie is is far too similar to a thousand other movies. But they do make some nice choices. The thing that it has going for it is sort of the chemistry that they develop between the Afghan warlord that they are allies with and then Chris Hemsworth's character, the the captain of the American squad. Yeah, I did like that as well. Uh, Hemsworth, your buddy, your fave, plays uh, <laughs> Mitch Nelson, the captain of the American squad. And he he's a very charismatic actor, and he brings that to this role. And I did like the interplay with the General General Dostum, the Afghan warlord, played by uh, Navid Nagaban. Probably butchered that, and I'm sorry. They have a nice interplay, and that's one of the things that I think the movie does well. There's 
where the culture clash comes into it, where the American side has to learn a little bit about what they're dealing with. You know, they're in a new culture now, how maybe some diplomacy can work. How to earn their respect. How to earn their respect and how to do things like you don't just come in here all the time with all your bluster and say the American way is always right, you know. That's some of the most effective passages in the movie where the Afghan warlord kind of clues in, most specifically the captain and, and just the Americans in general, you know, what they're dealing with now. Uh, this is a whole new ball game that 9-11 brought on, obviously. Now, the script was done by a couple of vets. The, the director, this is just his second feature, uh, which shows, I think, a little bit. Uh, the director is named Nikolai Fugelsig. But he's got some experienced screenwriters. He's yes. Got, he's got Ted, Ted Talley. Ted Talley, who wrote... The Silence S- of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. And then he's got uh, Peter Craig, who has done... He wrote um, the, ta- the Town. The Town. He was a co-writer of The Town. So In both cases, they're adop- they're adapting a book, which they are doing here as well. So you've right. got some, yeah, some veteran talent who know what they're doing. Yeah, and the script kind of goes back and forth because you'll get some lines where you just go, Oh, really? That's such a throwaway, cliched line. Not only that, the other thing that we talked about was that there are so many times when a character, a bit of character dialogue is clearly just scripted so that the character can explain to the audience a little bit of backstory, a little bit of what's going on. It's nothing one human being would say to another human being. It's strictly for the audience to help us follow along, which is useless. And more specifically, it's probably nothing that these human beings would say to each other because it's things they already know. And that's exposition dialogue, which does get to be a problem. But then, just when you're ready to give up on it, it comes in with some nicely nuanced bit of dialogue. And you're like, okay. And then once it rolls along, I think the director gets some some footing and feels better with some of the battle scenes. Because toward the end, I thought, especially the final battle scene, yeah. was no, really well I agree plotted with you. and well I agree done. with you. The, the, the battle sequences were great. There were some fascinating uh, surprises in it. I want to really, for a second, I want to point out some of the other actors, though, because the great Michael Shannon is in this movie. And Michael Pena, who's just, you know what, he's a reliable character actor, movie after movie, because he brings a little something comical to everything, you know? Yeah. And he does a nice job in this, too. He's always solid. And then you've got William Fickner. Oh, uh, sure. A small, and from Moonlight, Trevante Rose, <gasps> right. who played the Black adult. The in adult. Moonlight. Oh, my God. It was so great. Nice to see him. It's it a, is it's great a to see him. It's a smaller part. It is. And he smiles so it much does. in this one. You almost don't realize it's him. <laughs> yeah. You don't. Yeah, because exactly. he doesn't smile in Moonlight. Yeah, but it's um, a very, very strong ensemble cast. It is. It really is. And one of the things I think you and I both like the best is how the Afghan general has a walkie-talkie and will shout at the Taliban leader, who he hates personally because he knows him personally and he has a personal vendetta against him. So he just shouts, <laughs> the Americans are going to kill you. Ah! Yeah. Ah, you dog. And yeah. it's crazy and, yeah. and funny and nutty. And it just gives the movie a, an interesting flavor. Like, this is not your traditional, very stoic sort of battle sequence. Yeah, uh, so although a, it is bloody as hell. It's an, it's an incredible story. And the movie goes back and forth between falling into those cliches and, and rising above them. So that is 12 strong this week. I think we both would, would give it a lukewarm recommendation. Sure. Next up, another action-packed movie, A Gritty Crime Saga, which follows the lives of an elite unit of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department and the state's most successful bank robbery crew as the outlaws plan a seemingly impossible heist on the Federal Reserve Bank. It's Den of Thieves. We're under heavy fire! Keep your eyes open. Every cop in the country is going to be looking for us. Get to know your enemy, boys. Every big-time crew has been busted. These are the guys who took them down. 
This is bangers, these are not. Whoever it is, they're addicted to heists. The Federal Reserve. It's like Fort Knox. At any one time, there's anywhere between 500 and 800 billion dollars in there. Every millimeter of it covered by cameras, sensors, and motion detectors. Stand across the street and stare at the building for two minutes. You have security on your ass. Only bank that's never been robbed. That's why we're gonna rob it. Every time I'm in the street, I hear ya, 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 ya. You know what this means? It means I am a member of a gang. Only we have badges, which means you are done. So here's another one. Oh, I don't think I could have had lower expectations of this one because, first of all, the trailer looked terrible. Second of all, it's a January studio release. This is when the studios sweep out all their junk, right? And it's a Gerard Butler January studio release. So, you know, it's going to be terrible. And yet... It's surprising because, yeah, you've got Gerard Butler who, let's face it, he he picks movies about as well as the Cleveland Browns pick draft picks. <laughs> and... You look at the the director, it's a first-time director, uh, and he also writes, and he was one of the five writers on Gerard Butler's classic, London Has Fallen. God, that movie's terrible. That was the worst movie I saw last year. So you look at that, and it doesn't doesn't really inspire much confidence. But you know what? It's got some surprising things going for it. It's a heist movie, and right away, it's not long before you you figure out, this is mainly the heat. (laughs) <laughs> this, this this has Michael Mann all over it. Not the heat. I'm sorry. Mainly heat. 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 The one with uh, Pacino and De Niro going at it, with a little bit of the town thrown in. But but it's it starts this slow build toward a confrontation, much like De Niro right, and Pacino sure. in Heat, toward these two camps. You've got the the good guys, although they're kind of bad guy good guys, really rogue cops. You know, led by Big Nick. This is Gerard Butler. He's in the LA LA County Sheriff's Department. And he's going after Merriman, Pablo Schreiber, who's very good, Merriman and his crew, because they find out the big score they're going for is to knock off the branch of the Federal Reserve, which, of course, has never been robbed, in L.A. there. So it's an incredible convoluted scheme, and that's where you start getting into your your bank heist Ocean's Eleven type things. They do borrow a couple of plot points right out of Ocean's Eleven about how they, they get this heist done. But there's some surprisingly engaging dialogue right. in it, and as it as it moves along, it does take some inventive turns. <laughs> uh, and once it gets down to it, then you've got one character, O'Shea Jackson Jr. from uh, Straight Outta Compton, right? Ice Cube's uh, son, right? He plays a, a, a getaway driver who is openly both sides know that he's kind of working with both camps. They both know it, and they still let him do it. And that's kind of interesting. It is. Where it all builds to. And then, of course, at the a- end, you, it really starts to lean on an Ocean's Eleven type because at the very end, you find out, all right, you think you know what happened. Now, this is what really happened. And we've seen that with all the Ocean's movies and also with Logan Lucky right, right. here just uh, just recently. So it does offer more than I thought it would. It really does. Uh, it's it's. I think it shows that... This filmmaker, now that he's he's directing and writing, Christian Gudekast, I've got all these tough names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just sit here quietly. Right, who, who I said was a writer on um, on uh, London, London Has, Has Fallen. Fallen, but now he's he's a filmmaker in his own right, a director. And I think this does show, if nothing else, he does have some potential. I'll be interested to see where it goes because he has a little ear for dialogue. Mm-hmm. And how to take a genre, you know, the heist movie. And yeah, he does borrow. There's no doubt about that, thematically and also plot points. You know, just give it a, a fresh, thin, maybe thin 
fresh coat of paint. And so well, I think it's worth bringing up, though, as you say, he's got an ear for a dialogue. He's a little tone deaf in terms of things like police brutality. Yeah. I mean, there are there are some there are some moments where you just want to cringe a little like, that, I don't know. I don't know that we can still get away with this in movies today. That is right. That is definitely right with these bad guy, good guys. Yeah, they're a little free and whimsical with not only that current event, but a few others. So, yeah, I will grant you that. But I think it also benefits from the low expectations. Yeah, they always do. But the (laughs) Den Den of Thieves, more enjoyable than we thought it would be. Next up, one that I think we'll be hearing about come awards season. It's set in 1950s London. Reynolds Woodcock, there's a name, is a renowned dressmaker whose fastidious life is disrupted by a young, strong-willed woman, Alma, who becomes his muse and lover. Latest from Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis, Phantom Thread. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. (laughs) Every piece of me. So this is the latest film that has been released in the big cities so it could qualify for award season, but now it's getting the national rollout. Right, and this is the movie that I have been waiting for more than any of the others because Paul Thomas Henry is my all-time favorite filmmaker. He's got an incredible body of work with nary a a, a misstep. I mean, even no matter what you think of Inherent Vice, and I didn't like it as much as you did, his entire career so far has been darn near spotless. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I was excited about this one, even though, you know, the buzz was, you know, it certainly isn't There Will Be Blood, right? Which was their last collaboration and Daniel Mm Day-Lewis's Oscar-winning turn. And it isn't. Oh, it certainly isn't. It's a story of, of the like, a fashion designer, a gown maker of the most upper of crusts. He makes, uh, you know, a Belgian princess's wedding gown at one point in this. I mean, he, you know, he's making masterpiece gowns. And he's a bit of a, a you know, narcissistic genius. I mean, he, his whole world has been shaped to just allow him whatever he requires to focus solely on making these dresses. He can just be obsessive about these dresses. And his sister, Cyril, basically makes sure everything else keeps moving smoothly. She handles the business. She handles sort of the house. She just, you know, she she handles everything. So all he has to do is obsess about these dresses. And it's a it's a system that's worked out very well for them up to now. And And then he falls for a waitress who becomes his next muse she becomes his next model and uh, girlfriend and there is this fascinating power struggle but struggle isn't exactly the right word for it as sort of the baton is being handed from one female strong-willed female to the next things will be shaken up things will change around but what i think is interesting about it is that he is by no means the alpha in his house not at all and so we've reached a point in, in his life where this this other woman has come in and she has decided no no it's time for me to do this you know <laughs> but it's what i love about that particular aspect of it is is that it's not catty I mean, there is some tension, certainly, but it's more that the sister who's run things up to now, you know, she just, she's not sure. And the sister, is, we have to say, is played by Leslie Manville. <gasps> who's Couldn't be better. Always great. If you've seen a lot of Mike Lee movies, as I have, you'll know her instantly. She's so, so good, as she is in this movie. Oh, she's flawless. She's she's absolutely flawless. And this is, a, I mean, this is a, a very, 
delicately, beautifully written film. It's not going to appeal to everybody because it's going to seem on the surface like nothing happens until the last 20 minutes. (laughs) Right, right. But it's one that I think you could easily look at and say, well, this story of creation, you could easily make the metaphor that the dressmaker character would be the director. It's Paul it's Thomas hard Anderson. not to, yeah. to be honest with you. We're it not really, sure of no, that. No, we're not. But it, but it's because because his obsession is basically the perfect creation, a perfect artwork of his own, and how he can find ways to leave little parts of himself in his creations, whether or not, or maybe specifically. Definitely not where the audience or the person wearing the dress in this movie doesn't even realize. No, they have no idea. It's a beautiful, and it it is a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And actually, Paul Thomas Anderson uh, mans the camera for this one, which is unusual. Yeah. It looks so great. It is so much a story about artistic creation. Again, not a lot happens and and it's a little bit long. The payoff is fascinating and so weird, but in a great way. But all three performances, I mean, I feel confident that Daniel Day-Lewis is going to get nominated, rightly so, for an Oscar. I would love to see either of the other two. I mean, supporting actress, this is probably the, the most stacked category this year, but both of them deserve some thought. Yeah, and Alma, his muse, is played by a German actress, Vicky Creeps. creeps. Uh, another tough name. I know. I hope it's not Kreps and we're saying Creeps. Anyway... Uh, Yeah, definitely they deserve attention as well. And this movie is getting also some more headlines because it's the latest where Daniel Day-Lewis is what, saying this is it and he's going to go be a cobbler? (laughs) And seriously, he has said that before. (laughs) So we shall see. But if anybody can get him back working uh, after this, it'll be Paul Thomas Anderson again, and we'll be right there. So big recommendation this week for Phantom Thread. And a second Oscar contender that's finally getting national release this week is set in northern Italy in 1983. 17-year-old Elio begins a relationship with visiting Oliver, his father's research assistant, with whom he bonds over his emerging sexuality, their Jewish heritage, and the beguiling Italian landscape. It's Call Me By Your Name. You only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter? You know what things. You saying what I think you're saying? shouldn't have said anything. Just pretend you never did. Nature has cunning ways of finding our weakest spot. So two likely best actor nominations in the same week. Yeah, young Timothy Chalamet, or is it yeah. Ch- Chalamet? I think it's Chalamet. This is the week to challenge me with the names. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, he kind of came out of nowhere. He's in, what, three or four big movies this yes, year. Yes, right? Lady Bird, he's in yeah. Hostels, which we'll talk about next week. And But this is the one, yeah, man. This, is, this the one. is It is an unbelievable performance. I don't know where he came from, but he, he's here now, and I, I would be shocked if he wasn't nominated because, I mean, no slight against him, but Best Actor is not a stacked category it this isn't. year. No, you're but right. he definitely belongs in it. And, and we, we talk a lot about a movie's tone. Yeah. An atmosphere. This this is just draped in it. It is. It is. It is just ripe is the word. It is. I mean, and it's it's sumptuous. It's like all of those words. It's the way that it's been directed. It's the way that it looks. But it's also, you know, the, the performances throughout. There's a, such a tenderness in all of yeah. the performances. 
Army Hammer plays the research assistant, Oliver, uh-huh. Oliver and he also, it is I, the best performance I've seen, at least since The Social Network, but maybe he's, in his career. He's developed a, a nice, solid career of really good supporting yes, performances. agreed. Let's be honest, he hasn't broken through as a lead yet. No, I agree. But he has got some nice, solid performances. This one, you're right, probably the best. And I'm going to let you take the director's name this time, because here's another one, Luca... Luca Guadagnino. Okay, there you go. He's the director. James Ivory is the writer here adapting a book. And, yeah, it's it's just a beautiful, gentle, loving, almost pastel-laden yeah. type of movie, which fits the Italian countryside, the landscape. Yeah, Everything absolutely. is just picture perfect. The issue that I had with this film, Elio is 17, and he falls for the research assistant uh, of his of his father, and mother, his parents are um, researching Roman Greco culture. I had an issue with the age difference. It bothered me a great deal watching this film. I, I, I kept waiting. Isn't anybody going <laughs> to call the police? I don't know. But but here's the thing: when you read the book, which I had not done, Oliver's character is supposed to be 23 or 24 years old, and Army Hammer is 31. So 31 to 17. Yeah. That's that's reason to call the police, right? <laughs> in the 80s, I suppose, a boy who's almost 18 and a, and a boy in his, his young to mid-20s, I suppose that isn't quite as yeah, problematic, although it, it still causes me pause. They do mention, I think, in the movie that he's only got, what, a couple of months until he's 18. So I, I know he's still not 18, and I get you. It would be a problem. There's no way they would have the character in the movie be 31. Uh, but he's got Army Hammer, who doesn't really look 24, but it's, you know, it's close enough. I got you there, but it's one that is just... It's just so well put together in every sense of the word. Everything about it almost like is like looking like a painting, a, yeah. mo- a moving painting. It's dreamy. It's very dreamy. It's dr- And seductive is what yeah. it is. And I, I want to point out, too, because you're the one who mentioned, and I know that you love Michael Stuhlbarg. I do. He's got a fairly small role in this, and he's just, he's just supportive. He's just a good guy until the end. He has one little soliloquy that is so beautiful. It's beautifully written. It's incredibly performed. It's so beautifully written, dare I say, it's almost a little unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, but Stuhlbarg just nails it. And uh, I'll be honest, you'll be struck by how much he looks like Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. You really will. Because Stuhlbarg has a beard here. His hair is about the same length as Robin Williams, how he looked in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, it's, it's almost uncanny, but boy, he nails that speech like nobody's business. Yeah. So as you can tell, big recommendation for from both of us for Call Me By Your Name. One that should definitely get some award season consideration for sure. Those are the big national releases this week, but a few to talk about that are getting limited limited releases uh, this week, but are worth talking about. The first one is Crazy Nicolas Cage. He's back. It's a teenage girl and her little brother having to survive a wild 24 hours during which a mass hysteria of unknown origins causes parents to turn violently on their own kids. It's called Mom and Dad. Multiple reports are now coming in of parents murdering their own children. Listen to me. We have to get out of the house before Mom and Dad come home. Brian Taylor is the co-writer, co-director of the Crank series, and this is his first time uh, at the helm on his own, and he's basically taken a really well-worn horror trope, which is when parents and children turn on each other, but he turned it around because, generally speaking, it's, it's the children become monsters, so the parents have to kill them to, in this case, the parents just kill them. 
They just kill them. And uh, they've gone a bit insane. It's funnier than you might think, but the main reason to... It's subversive, it's interesting, but the main reason to see this is because Nicolas Cage in one of those classic Nicolas Cage characters. Unhinged, <laughs> lunatic, outstanding. I think I saw somebody else, I don't know whose quote it was, describe it as Home Alone on bath salts. Oh, I could totally see that, so, 100%. Uh, wish I'd come up with that line, but it totally, <laughs> totally sums it up. So if crazy Nicolas Cage is your thing... You got to check out mom and dad this week. And if you thought we couldn't up the WTF angle, well, just wait. How about this one? A documentary comprised entirely of footage from dashboard cameras from Russian cars. Real footage. It's called the Road Movie. It sounds like it would be just a bunch of YouTube clips back to back to back. It, honest to God, it is not. It's fascinating. It's incredibly well put together because the director would use fairly lengthy uh, you know, journeys that go someplace unusual, either into a river or, you know, uh, with a car turning over, something like that. And then you'll get like a whole montage of short clips of animals in the street or people being weird or natural disasters. And uh, there's this great cadence to everything. What you see is nuts. Absolutely nuts. All you have to do is watch the trailer. Oh, yeah. And you just get little bits of the stuff that goes on in these dashboard cameras. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, anything, like like I said, upping the WTF factor from crazy Nicolas Cage. This would be the one called The Road Movie. Also a limited release, a documentary. It's a chronicle of the Barack Obama administration's foreign policy team and the events of Obama's final year in office. It's called The Final Year. I feel like we should have a clock with the days counting down because what we have set in motion, all of that is at stake. Syria, Libya... North Korea, climate change. We have about as full of an agenda as any administration has ever had. I'm always feeling a sense of urgency to try to get as much done as possible. You're sitting here and you're realizing the stakes. All right, let's do this. I don't think we're shocking anybody to say that we're big fans of President Obama, not uh, big fans of the current president. So this is the type of movie that's actually going to appeal to people of our view. But... I gotta say, even if you don't, this is a fascinating look inside the actual business of governing. You know, the day-to-day persistence of trying to get something done. And um, it's director Greg Barker, and he was allowed really unprecedented access into the final year, uh, hence the title, of Obama's administration. And it really centers, centers on four people. Senior Advisor Ben Rhodes, Secretary of State John Kerry, U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power, and then National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and it really f- focuses on foreign policy in this movie, and you see them all trying to advance certain ideals of the administration. And there's some there's some clashing, uh, especially with the Syrian conflict. You see, there are some different uh, different opinions get bandied about before the president has to decide on a course of action. and And so it's fascinating in in terms of a real life West Wing, but then it's also let's let's be honest, it's incredibly bittersweet because. I'm sure you can say, well, the director just tried to put these people in the best light he possibly could because he's a liberal Hollywood elite. You know, whatever. You still get the idea that they're, regardless of your political leanings, these are decent people, they're committed, they're highly intelligent, and these are the kind of people that we really need at the highest levels of government. And without going on a sermon... We'll leave it at that. So it's very, very fascinating from just a a documentary angle, but it's also bittersweet in terms of landing like a freshly opened time capsule from some 
far away year that's not very far away, but sure seems like it now. <laughs> and one more limited release this week, an anime animated feature based on The Little Broomstick by Mary Stewart. A strange flower grants a girl magic powers in Mary and the Witch's Flower. I found it in the woods. The Witch's Flower. They only bloom once every seven years. They say witches used to seek it out. Ah! What is going on? Ah! Ah! Tonight, I really am a witch. So this is made by the studio that picked up where Studio Ghibli left off. And if you're a fan of of those films, then you probably would would uh, appreciate this one as well. The little girl, yeah, she becomes she doesn't really become a witch. She's granted powers by these flowers, and she winds up at kind of a Hogwarts Endor. Mm-hmm. If Hogwarts had been sort of raised up in the world of Spirited Away, that's kind of what you get. You know, she she's got some interesting teachers. She's got a conflict because she's not the only person interested in these flowers. She's got to help save the world of magic. It's a hero's journey. It's a nice movie, but it looks absolutely Absolutely glorious. And a couple to mention that are coming out on DVD, Blu-ray, home video. Not good news for the home video, re- home video releases this week. First one is Happy Death Day. Not as bad as I thought it was going to be, right? It's it's Groundhog Day as a slasher. It's got some fun moments. It's absolutely disposable. But still, Citizen Kane compared to the other one this week, which is The Snowman. I How think, disappointed were we? Ooh, I think we talked about this when it came out. We talked about it on the podcast. It's just nonsensical. It was based on a book. I guess a lot of people were fans of the book. We didn't read the book. But it it really feels like, I guess, in reading after the fact, just what it is. A movie that just had huge chunks of it taken out thrown together and put out in the theaters, it makes no sense. It doesn't, which is really tough for a lot of movies, but especially if it's a mystery. Yeah, (laughs) and I think the director just washed his hands of it. Yeah. An almost Alan Smithy type of deal when it came out. So, oh man, so disappointing, especially because it stars uh, Michael Fassbender, Mm -hmm. who is so, Mm -hmm. so good all the time. But it's just nonsensical and and dumb, the snowman. All right, so we look forward to not going to be as busy of a week next week as it was this week. We've got the final chapter, they say, in Maze Runner called Death Cure, and also Hostiles, a movie that uh, we just saw but we'll talk about next week. So a lot to process this week. If you've seen any of the movies or looking forward to them, let us know. Keep the conversation going. As always, the easiest way to do it is on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F, also Mad Wolf Columbus on Instagram and Facebook. And the main website with all our written reviews and other fun stuff, is at madwolf.com. The Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and sponsored by the good folks at Marcus Crosswood Theater. So until next week, I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf, and this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. <laughs>